If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty Cake. Except no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter and dear friend, Mr. Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. Hi, Leslie. I'm here instead of watching baseball on my couch. I am here waiting for the Dodger game to start. So, Dan, baseball season's here. It's going to be 80 degrees in LA this weekend, and spring is in the air. Oh, and a bunch of stuff happened in the TV world this week. All the charges were dropped against beleaguered Empire star Jesse Smollett. Apple kind of showed off what to expect from its video service. Kind of. Kind of. A Sex in the City follow-up series is in early development. Why? Brad Felchuk joined Ryan Murphy at Netflix. Is he allowed to be alone otherwise? <laughs> and he is one of multiple producers to land massive overall deals this week. Meanwhile... FX renewed Better Things for a fourth season. Yay! And, of course, we're still on One Day at a Time watch and waiting to see if Sony TV can find a new home for the canceled Netflix favorite. And in addition, we thank you all very much for the uh, the warm response to the introduction of our mailbag, or at least our email. And if you would like to provide us with questions, comments, concerns, random insults, or random praise, our email address is tvstop5 at thr.com. That's a number five. Yes, we know it says tvstop5, but, but you can figure charming. it out. Exactly. Well, Dan, with so much going across the TV landscape, we're here on the podcast to go beyond the top headlines of the week and offer a deep dive into the latest news. With all that out of the way, let's get right into it. Number one. Leading off this week, Apple gathered top stars, showrunners, and agents at its Cupertino headquarters for a nearly 100-minute presentation in which we didn't really learn all that much about its plans for its video service, Apple TV+. I had simple needs. They fulfilled very few of my needs. On March 25th, Apple unveiled a number of things, a credit card, a video game hub, and a new magazine offering, which The Hollywood Reporter will be participating in. But in terms of scripted originals, Apple confirmed that Apple TV Plus will launch in the fall at a mystery date to be determined. Video heads Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich shared the stage with The Morning Show stars Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, and Steve Carell. Stars and producers, including Little Voices J.J. Abrams and Sarah Bareilles, sees Jason Momoa and Alfre Woodard. And Kumal Nanjani spoke eloquently about anthology Little America, while Steven Spielberg touted his anthology Amazing Stories. Oh, and you know, Big Bird and Oprah Winfrey were there, too. Still to be determined are a lot of details that I think most of the town, myself included, were expecting. Trailers, premiere dates, how much the service would cost, if Apple would unspool originals weekly or in a binge model. Dan, what did you think of the presentation? I don't know how you schedule a presentation of this scope with as much time and resources and money as Apple put into it and then still have all of those questions that you just asked outstanding. And since really and truly what I wanted from this presentation was probably most particularly to learn two things, A, when will these things start coming, and B, how much will normal people have to pay to watch them, 
I don't know how, if you're having a presentation within six to seven to eight months of rollout, you don't have those answers. And so that was my biggest takeaway is I watched for over a hundred minutes and I don't know what I got out of it. So maybe we'd better turn things over to someone who knows more about the biz and was actually there. To break down the big takeaways from Apple's formal video unveiling, please welcome back to the podcast, THR digital editor, Natalie Jarvie. Natalie, you're just back from Cupertino. What were your big takeaways? It's a really good question because there were a <laughs> lot of things that, to your point that were missing from this presentation. But, you know, Overall, I think this was meant to be Apple's showcase that services matter to them going forward. Services being, you know, the software, the apps that you get on your phones, not the devices themselves. And this is a big focus for the company. This is where they expect to make a lot of their money in the next few years. So I think this is all about them showing the world that, hey, we're committed to this and we're going to to make sure that we're part of your life in all of these different ways from credit cards to television. Well, describe the sort of culty atmosphere in the room on the campus. Were people still jazzed about this? Uh, because on my couch in my apartment, everyone was disappointed, by which I mean me. But I don't know what the case was for people actually there in the bubble. Well, so it's always kind of skewed because Apple puts a lot of their own employees and partners in the audience who all cheer very loudly at the, you know, drop of any tiny little piece of information or stand up to take photos the minute Oprah comes up on stage. So it's a bit hard to tell, you know, how much of this is real enthusiasm. You know, that's one of the things that's really interesting, though, is Apple is so used to having this kind of cult of fans who love and adore everything that they do. It's a lot harder to sway the entertainment press and the entertainment community. And I think that they kind of they they didn't totally expect that this lack of news would um, have the impact that it did. At least that's my takeaway from the room. The way they were talking about it was as though it was a really big deal. Yeah. One of the things that you wrote this week that I thought was was very intriguing was Apple's desire to be the cable box of streaming was, I believe, how you phrased it. Can you talk a little bit about what that means. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of reading between the lines because, again, Apple didn't really tell us exactly how they're going to put all of these different entertainment pieces together. But it's notable that what they're telling us is that the Apple TV app that's already on your TV boxes, on your phones, that's going to be the primary way through which most people get their content moving forward. It's not just going to be Apple originals that are going to be there. But now also, if you have a Hulu Live TV subscription, you can watch that content right through the Apple TV app. You'll also be able to subscribe directly to HBO and CBS All Access and Stars and Showtime directly through that app. So to me, this starts to sound like Apple wants to be your one-stop shop for all things entertainment. They don't want you to have to go to a bunch of different apps across all these various platforms. They want to give it to you all in one easy place. And then on top of that, of course, they're promoting that they'll be able to personalize it to you and show you the stuff that you care about most, give you alerts when there's a close game for a team you care about, that type of thing. Yeah. So they want to be a content curator, but at the same time, you're still going to have to pay for CBS All Access and pay for HBO and pay for Showtime. It's not like you pay, you know, $20 a month for Apple TV and you get all of this content for free as part of it. 
Most likely not, although some of the reporting leading up to the event was that they do ultimately want to release some sort of a bundle that will discount some of these services. We don't know because they didn't announce that on Monday, so Shocker. that remains to be seen. But there could be a, a scenario in which, yes, they try to bundle a lot of these services together. Maybe the Apple originals become kind of the the thing that they dangle, the carrot they dangle in front of you to get you inside. And then once you're there, there's all this other content, too. Right. I mean, that's something that Amazon currently does. But they're you know, in this case, Amazon's free carrot is the fact that you can get free shipping on toilet paper or anything else you need. Yeah, I mean, Amazon, you know, has this really compelling offering and and it remains to be seen what Apple can do that's similar. I mean, maybe if they, you know, if they also package in news and unlimited iCloud storage and, you know, music, music and, and Apple toilet and, paper plus, I exactly. believe is the future. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, well, the, one of the things I thought was kind of an interesting accommodation or acknowledgement or whatever that came out of it was the announcement that the Apple TV app at some point is going to be available for Roku and non-Apple devices. Was that expected? Did that feel like kind of a standout detail? Because that that kind of got me more than anything else, I think. Yeah, that was probably one of the most interesting things we learned on Monday. And, you know, they kind of tease that this is the direction that they're headed at CES earlier this year when they announced that you'd be able to get iTunes on non-Apple devices and non-Apple television sets. So they've definitely been heading in this direction, but it's a huge shift in strategy for Apple from where they were even a couple years ago. The idea that you could access their apps on these other devices is pretty new. Uh, now you've been able to access iTunes on other computers and, and things for a while, but the fact that they'll allow you to have a Samsung television set or a Roku box and also get their TV app signals that they do want to be everywhere. And that's really important for their Hollywood contingent because you know, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, I'm pretty sure they want people to be able to watch their show anywhere and everywhere. And they want to be able to have millions of people watching. And this ensures that they'll be able to reach the biggest audience possible. So tell us about the spread. That's <laughs> always the thing I want to know about events like this is what did they feed you, darn it? Well, you know, so first I have to set the stage. You, you get dropped off. There's all these Apple employees in, in green T-shirts that, you know, perky, welcoming you to headquarters, you know, following you up the walkway, making sure you get into the event. And then you go into the Steve Jobs Theater and, you know, they had individually brewed cups of pour over coffee in like pure San Francisco tech elite fashion. Lots of little, uh, you know, cinnamon rolls and bite-sized foods and, and the like. And then, uh, you know, they take you down, you descend down into the theater for the event. And then afterwards, there was like a whole media area that was outfitted with outlets and Wi-Fi and all the things you'd need to write the story. I mean, this whole space was literally designed just for these kinds of events. So in that sense, they know what they're doing. Yeah, but in the sense of if they were trying to take a page out of the broadcast network's upfront presentations, that they really <laughs> left a lot to be desired. Yeah. I mean, listen, at least at an upfront, you usually get some trailers and we got what, less than two minutes of footage. So that's problematic in my book. But hey, we got the title for the morning show drama, which we've been calling untitled. And now it actually is just called the morning show. So there we go. <laughs> One less word we have to use in our stories. There we go. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. To read full coverage, go to THR.com slash Apple. Thanks, guys. Next up this week, let's talk about the future of the CW. Number two. 
The Younger Skewing Broadcast Network, a joint venture between CBS TV Studios and Warner Brothers, announced that the upcoming 15th season of Supernatural would be its last. It's truly the end of an era in a couple of ways. The genre drama starring Jared Padalecki, Jensen Ackles, and Misha Collins is the last series left standing from the former WB network that included shows like my favorite, Dawson's Creek, Smallville, Felicity, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and so many more. CW president Mark Pedowitz has always said that Supernatural would run as long as the guys wanted to do it. And with this, the series officially ending next year with 20 episodes, he has now stopped attempting, at least for what we know now, to try and launch spinoffs out of the series after realizing the draw was really its trio of stars. In a larger sense, Dan, the CW finds itself at a turning point. This season, it's saying farewell to critical and awards darlings Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin, along with iZombie. And next year, Arrow and Supernatural will both be hanging it up. It is definitely a network in transition. And when you say we're talking about the future of the CW, I feel like we've been talking about that in various different forms, both in this podcast, but also for years, because it's always been very difficult from the outside to understand what the CW even really was. I mean, it is a collaboration of, of different corporate entities, basically. But when you look at what does or doesn't constitute success for the CW, it's always been impossible to measure in the traditional ways that we've measured it. So in, to some degree, they were kind of presaging the, we have no idea what the ratings are for anything, success or failure of Netflix shows by having shows where they had ratings and the ratings all looked horrible, at which point Mark Pedowitz would laugh at us at the TCAs about how we were still stuck up on uh, ratings. And he'd go, ah, but see, you know, the streaming numbers and the Netflix numbers and the international numbers and all the numbers that we don't actually really have. But it still has been a network for years that I felt like had as clear a sense of its identity as any other network. And now I'm kind of wondering, because as you say, their two biggest critical successes were Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Those were two shows that won Golden Globes, that got them in that different conversation, the awards conversation that otherwise they're really not in. And they're gone. They're also losing iZombie. You keep forgetting that they're losing iZombie. And I'm gonna now I'm keep... just doing it on purpose. <laughs> and I'm going to keep reminding you that iZombie is going away. And iZombie is kind of a, a tweener of a show because it's a show that I would say is critically liked but not loved, and it never was an awards player, though I would argue Rose McIver probably could have been in some Golden Globe-type conversations if they hadn't been distracted by pushing Rachel Bloom and Gina Rodriguez. But you've got those. You've got the mother of the of all of the superhero shows going away. You know, Arrow is kind of the, you know, if, if the CW is a sourdough, Arrow is the sourdough starter. And, and it's ending with a short episode order. It's only 10. And probably could have ended three or four years ago. I think probably the CW would have been in better shape if it had ended three or four years ago and they'd been able to have Flash at kind of peak value as the centerpiece. But once you lose a number of these shows, you're going to be starting to look around and going, what is the CW? It, it's kind of... It's a lot of second generation things. So it's all of the superhero spinoffs and spinoffs from the superhero spinoffs. Uh, I've heard some people say really good things about how the first season of Legacies has evolved. I haven't had the time to watch it myself, but that's also a spinoff from a spinoff. Of course, from Vampire Diaries, from the originals. Which were two other very important shows to the CW that they lost in the past 
couple years. So I'm really curious. Okay, so how confident would you say you are that you you mentioned the Pedowitz appeared to have stopped looking for spinoffs. If you had to put money on it, though, do you think he'll make one more stab? No. Honestly, I, I see we, we need, might need to have a, a $5 bet on this one because I bet you they make at least one more effort to spin that show off. Unless one of those three central stars decide that they want to do a spinoff, I would be shocked if they tried again. Because I, just I think, think they've tried, what, three or four different times? Oh, they had they the keep first, trying over and over. They had the first one that they they it pick, got picked up to pilot. It didn't make the cut. They redeveloped it. It still didn't go. They tried last season with a female-fronted one, which went to pilot and didn't go. I think there was a third one that was developed but didn't even go to pilot. I, I, I've lost track, honestly. Well, there was also one that was a digital sh- series of digital shorts. They've They've attempted to expand that universe with no success. But I would still, I mean, if I were them, I would make one last step. Just. But I mean, at this point, w- why? I mean, look, this show <laughs> is so valuable to them. Mostly, I mean, look, the ratings are the ratings at, on the CW. They don't really care. Their main demo is 18 to 34, which is not the central ad buyer demo of 18 to 49. But the CW makes its money. Not, I mean, I'm sure ad sales is a part of it. But in a larger sense, it's the international when they sell these shows around the world. It's the the massive SVOD deal that they have with Netflix. That's where the money to sustain the CW comes from. That's why the CW exists. It's it's a portal to to those revenue streams. And what I'm interested in is when you have Warner Media launching a stream its own streaming service in the fourth quarter this year, which we will talk extensively about in the in the coming months and have already done so. What happens to that Netflix output deal? That's a massive revenue stream for those networks, for, for for those studios, for CBS TV studios and Warner Brothers. So do they end that? It's like it's the friend situation all over again. Do they continue to sell them to Netflix or do they live in perpetuity on the Warner Media streaming service with whatever that's called? I mean, that's a big question. And wither CW Seed. No one ever talks about CW Seed. I mean, I would be shocked if CWC didn't morph into whatever oh. the more thing is. <laughs> it, you know? it definitely has felt for a while like a thing on the verge of being morphed into something else. No, I just think you... But like, let's get really quick. Let's just get back to the idea of a Supernatural spinoff. Why? You've got <laughs> Batwoman, which is... I We would all be shocked. I've said multiple times if that doesn't go. Ruby Rose doesn't sign on to just guest star in one episode of, of a superhero show and do a pilot and not do anything. At the same time, this pilot season, the network is already working on spinoffs of Riverdale and Jane the Virgin, which is the the latter is going to be an anthology with Gina Rodriguez still participating in some form as an exec producer and I believe the narrator. But I mean, all of their pilots this this year, they have a Lost Boys reboot that, again, was redeveloped from last year, which I think was redeveloped from the year before or something crazy like that. Charmed is coming back. They have all of this IP. Of their pilots this year, only one of them, Glamorous, about a gender nonconforming high school grad, is based on an original idea. So why do you need a, a, a Supernatural spinoff? And yet they never attempt to redevelop the post-apocalyptic little women set in uh, Philadelphia with zombies. What's up with that? I, you know, that's what I want them to try again on. No, I, I just think you talked about the revenue streams and it's about keeping them open. I think the Jane the Virgin spinoff is frankly the one that's a lot harder to justify. I understand on a creative level why you want to keep everyone involved with it happy, but there's no there's no ratings justification for that. To exist, but on the other hand, you want to keep Gina Rodriguez happy and in the and, family. And Gina Rodriguez has become the face of that network. She has, despite again starring in a show that is not watched by that many people. And so you do still have a large supernatural audience. 
I just don't know why you would cut it off. I, I don't know necessarily like you make a huge deal of of here's what the spinoff is. We're planning on it because I feel like that's a mistake that they've made in the past. But if I were Pedowitz, I would be telling the writers, look, introduce a couple people who you like. Let us know who they are. We'll have conversations. I, w I would not say, OK, here's what the spinoff is. Because that has been a mistake for them, and it has caused a lot of fans to be pissed off on an almost annual basis when it doesn't get picked up. But I would say, look, I know you're tying this up, but also, if you happen to find a couple of good characters, we're not closing the door on the spinoff. Right, but they've done that in the past, where they've had fan-favorite characters do a spinoff, and then it doesn't go. I mean, and that's got to be heartbreaking for these actors, too. I, I think so. I, I, I would guess, and without knowing anything, that you could probably... Do something where it involved Misha Collins coming in a couple times as a guest star and being sort of the connective tissue. Right. But I mean, that, that goes against what Pedowitz was saying at, at TCA, where it's like, this show is the guys. And at this point, those three stars make oodles of cash doing fan conventions on weekends. They make more money doing those conventions than they do doing the show that made them famous and, and able to do those conventions in the first place. If you have not Googled Leslie's spectacular and award-winning story on fan conventions... If you Google Leslie Goldberg THR fan conventions, it's a superb story and really probably will tell you more about the business model of the CW and the people starring on it than anything else we could tell you, because that actually included reporting. Thank you, Dan. Your check is in the mail. Excellent. Well, I think that's a good transition. For our next topic, it's time for our first mailbag segment. Number three. Last week, we unveiled a listener feedback email line, and you responded with some great questions. Many of you are curious about the fight over packaging fees between the Writers Guild and agents that may result in writers firing said agents come April 7th. We're monitoring that story very closely, and we'll do a segment later down the line when there's something more concrete to discuss. We like to wait until we sort of have a bigger picture sense of what the story is, and we think that makes us responsible. Of course, sometimes when we wait, the story evolves into one thing, then we talk about it, and it becomes something completely different. So first up in the mailbag, a couple listeners asked us to check in on this week's developments in the uh, Jesse Smollett case, which we held back on in its first incarnation when Jesse Smollett was claiming that guys in MAGA hats beat him up as a hate crime. And then we talked about it when the Chicago Police Department was charging him with fraud and claiming he made up the entire thing. And he was indicted on 16 counts. 16 counts. So we thought that felt like probably the sort of thing that indicated that that's where the story's arc was headed. We were incorrect on Tuesday in a... Uh, shocking and still somewhat inexplicable reversal, prosecutors dropped all the charges against Smollett. And you would think, okay, that might end the story, but not even close, because the Chicago police and Mayor Rahm Emanuel have not just stood by their initial <laughs> comments, but they've, I would say, come close to doubling down. They've, they've been out there anywhere possible saying that this was a horrible miscarriage of justice by people under their employees. So... Uh, I don't know what the answer is, and I feel like anything we talk about now would probably change in a week. I mean, what does any of this even currently mean, Leslie? I mean, there's so much we don't know. You know, first off, Fox issued a statement saying that, that they were gratified that all the charges were dropped. But Empire, which by now has more than likely wrapped production and is already in post, has already written out Smollett out of the final two episodes it's unclear how the show will address his absence. There's been rumors from anything that he could be, that the character could be recast to, to that maybe he'll be written out. 
What's interesting to me, at least, is the fact that Empire is now officially owned by Disney. And I can't imagine that a company, which is so protective of its image, employing someone who is in the media with this kind of storyline, even though the charges have been dropped, even though he has not been convicted of anything, even though we have no idea exactly what happened, if he did this, if he didn't do this. It's still a controversy, and Disney is a company that really works hard to back away from that and to protect its image. Yeah, we can only follow, I don't mean we, as in the two of us, I mean as a collective society, we can only follow stories through a certain number of of twists and turns before our minds kind of get made up. So it's it's been very funny this week. Not funny. None of it's funny. It's all awful. But seeing the people who are kind of standing by each different level of where they stopped believing that the story could change. The people who continue to believe that he was a victim of a hate crime, which, you know, he still is saying. He's saying his story hasn't wavered. Then the people who still believe that it was entirely fraudulent. And now everyone else is like, shrug. So anyway, we said we weren't going to talk about that. And that was the whole point. So what's our first actual mailbag question, Leslie? Dan, we have a special request. Listener Brandon is curious about your thoughts on Survivor, a show you have written about extensively for decades. What do you think about the current season, Dan? Well, the first thing I would tell Brandon is that he should definitely be keeping up with Josh Wiggler's excellent Survivor coverage at THR.com slash Survivor. Josh is fantastic, does a great job. This season, I believe specifically, Brandon is asking about the Edge of Extinction twist that uh, in this week's episode gave six people who had been voted out the opportunity to come back into the game, kind of. I... (laughs) I generally do not love Survivor twists in general, simply because I think the reason why the show has been successful as it has been for 38 years, and you look at its ratings and the 38 years, 38 38 seasons, seasons. I felt really old for a second there. Guess what, Leslie? Guess what? (laughs) 38 seasons is because the formula works. And so the minor variations on the formula are the fun, the bigger innovations rarely end up being anything exciting. The... Edge of Extinction Island and all that is basically just another variation on Exile Island, on the on the really unsuccessful Outcasts uh, twist from early in the show's run that they never repeated because it was one of the most hated moments in the show's history. I thought that the initial way that they handled things with only one person coming back made it feel like a big anticlimax, especially coming after Jeff Probst announced, this is a show that has iconic moments and you're about to witness one. Like, come on, Jeff, let us experience the darn show for ourselves, man. But then one person came back into the game and then everyone else just went back to Extinction and now they're doing it again. And it's made a real muddle out of a game that works because the game works, not because they mix the game up. So... I have not been disliking this season, but I've been perplexed by all the different ways that this twist has caused the show to bend over backwards because we had, for the first six weeks of the season, episodes where no one went home. So there was the rhythm of the show, the show's rhythm that has been built up over the aforementioned 38 years or seasons, whatever, we're all old, has been thrown off and episodes have been had to be differently satisfying or in some cases entirely unsatisfying. So... I would say that has been my my feeling. Uh, also, listeners should know that there is the uh, the fine print Facebook page, which you can go to and that I write for 15 minutes about each week's episode. So uh, they're not really recaps, but they're half recaps. Rants? Recaplets. Rants? 
they're sometimes a little ranty. Really and truly, I set a stopwatch for 15 minutes. I don't edit it because if I were editing it, then it would be like an article. But yes, the Fine Print Facebook page is a great place to find my recaplets of Survivor. And THR.com slash Survivor with Josh Wiggler's full coverage. And he goes to set every season. It's incredible. Be sure to check out his new podcast called Series Regular, launching Wednesday, April 3rd. It's a look at the biggest shows on television with deep dives into each episode, starting with Game of Thrones. As we may have mentioned, Josh is the best. So that is my answer to our first question. Thank you, Brandon, for writing. Our next question is for Leslie. Surely in the future we'll have questions that are for both of us, but this week we decided to keep things a little separate. Listener Matthew wants to know if we think any of the upcoming streaming services will fail and if some of these companies will revert back to licensing their shows to Netflix and Hulu, just like the old days. Well, I think the old days haven't ended yet. Comcast and Warner Media and Disney are all launching in the fourth quarter of this year or early next. And they're faced with a tough decision. Do they continue to sell their big hit shows like Friends to Netflix and, and reap those $100 million deals and bolster their bottom lines? Or do they pull back their best content for their own platforms? The biggest hint that we have gotten so far is when Kevin Riley said it, that it wasn't a good idea to share crown jewel assets like Friends. But at the same time, turning your back on $100 million is not an easy thing to do. So it's unclear so far what those streaming plans are going to look like. If The Office could permanently live on the Comcast platform, there's still a lot of things to be worked out. But no, I don't think any of those streaming things are going to fail. I think this is the new world. Uh, you know, I think... This is the direction of the industry. Everyone is doing a streaming service. Everyone wants to keep and own the content. That's why you're seeing people like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes sign these big budget deals with Netflix because they everyone wants their own content. Everyone wants a reason for you to buy their service. The same reason that you want to pay $10 or $20 a month to subscribe to HBO because guess what? They have Game of Thrones and they have Game of Thrones exclusively. If you're a Ryan Murphy fan, you are paying for Netflix to watch anything new that he creates going forward. If you care about the DC Comics world, you are going to pay for DC Universe. That is how the industry is morphing. And I, I would be shocked to see any streaming service, either the ones that we know about that have come up or the ones that haven't been announced yet. Nothing's, none of these are going away. Something has to fail. Things always fail. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold, Leslie. But that's not to that's not to say that some of these streamers might cut back on their own original content. I, I don't know. I mean, that that's a massive question. And that would really see the bubble of this this industry burst a little bit. But what about kind of the littler things like does a shutter continue to exist? I'm not even sure what shutter is at this point. <laughs> But I mean, look, everyone has their own platform. I mean, Sony's Crackle is still a thing after losing Comedians in Cars getting coffee from Jerry Seinfeld, which Sony sold to Netflix for a buttload of money. But it also cannibalized Crackle. And they still have originals and they're still doing all, all of those things. Prove it. Name one Crackle original. Uh, Startup. Yes, that is the thing with Adam Brody. Correct. There is also The Oath. There might still be the art auction drama. Snatch. The reboot of Snatch. That, absolutely true. How many seasons of Snatch have aired? Three, two, I don't know. Designated Survivor has had five showrunners. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, ladies and gentlemen, crackle. <laughs> well, that wraps our first mailbag segment. Keep the great questions and comments coming to TV's top five at THR.com. For our fourth topic this week, and this segment goes out to loyal listener Jan, baseball season is officially underway, and you can hear the joy in our voice. 
number four. As Dan and I have mentioned on this podcast before, we are both longtime baseball fans. And personally, watching Dodger games is my respite from the insane world and stress of covering the TV industry. I've been a fan of the sport and a baseball card collector since I was 12, when my grandfather and I would spend summers listening to Vince Scully and talking about if players like Tony Gwynn or Wade Boggs could ever bat 400 again. I started collecting baseball cards in 1986, the first year I really started watching games on the regular, when Jose Canseco was getting cheered for blasting 400-foot homers and jeered for striking out as much as Dave Kingman and allegedly dating Madonna. I fell in love with the Dodgers the first time I saw the stadium in person with tickets that my mom procured from a Mother's Cookies promotion. It's my favorite thing, Dan. It is one of my favorite things also. And 1986 was the first uh, the first Topps complete set that I got. So Mine too. that was also when I started baseball card collecting. I and I still have it and they still have all the rubber band marks because I didn't know any better. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I somewhere I still have that in a box. They've been reshuffled and recirculated and reordered so many times that they are a total mess. And but I don't think that my mother threw away my baseball cards on the family's last move. So if you're listening, mom, let me know where my 86 top set is. Um, or we can just get you another one for like five bucks on eBay. It wouldn't Sorry. be the same. I know it's not the same, but that set sadly has zero value. The corners I creased, I creased myself. Like in those movies for, set in the 1950s and 60s by riding around on my bicycle with the baseball cards clacking in the wheels. Oh, we were card flippers. My circle of friends, we, were, we all flipped cards to see who could get them the farthest down the hallway or if you could lean them. Yeah, there's a whole. That's before we knew about condition and professionally grading and authenticating and all that stuff. I still collect, in case you can't tell from that weird knowledge drop. So, okay, as we are recording this, it is still opening day. As people will be listening to this, it will be the second Game day. Two, yeah. And fortunately, because the baseball season is a ridiculous 162-game regular you season You say ridiculous. Marathon, I say joyful. I say joyful also. It is still a lot of games. Let's be Plus honest. Plus 20-some postseason. Look, Florida Marlins fans don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Just because our teams might be in the postseason or might not what be. What do you mean might? Okay. Dodgers are going. I don't care about your Red Sox after last year. I, I apologize. And as a a half-Dodger fan at the very least, I can root for the Dodgers right up until the World Series happily. How are you feeling about the Dodgers this year, Leslie? Give me a win count. Upper 90s. Okay. Upper 90s. Corey Seager's back and healthy in the, in the starting lineup today. JT is healthy, didn't get hit by a pitch in spring training that knocked him out for a third of the season. Look, I was bummed we didn't get Bryce Harper, as I've talked about on this podcast before. A.J. Pollock, if he stays healthy, could be great. Cody Bellinger, you know, to refine his swing in the offseason. Austin Barnes is hoping for to at least not hover around the Mendoza line going forward. I like our team. I just wish we had better pitching and healthier pitching. I think healthier is the is the biggest concern at this point. So if you figure that maybe Kershaw's getting his DL stint out of the way early and might be healthy the rest of the season. And That's a big might. Yeah. And maybe this is a good way of curta curtailing Walker Bueller's innings count, even though I don't know that it really works that way. I don't way. even think he needs an innings count. I mean, I, that, that dude is primed and ready to go, as is Julio Urias, who had an incredible spring. Okay, he definitely needs an innings count. Because I'm yeah, pretty sure he's never thrown like more than 40 innings in a season because of the combination of injuries and being babied. And yes, he's probably thrown more than that. But I mean, he's 22 now. So big difference from when he broke in at 19. 
It is true, but still, he spent some of that time being injured. Yeah, so, Tommy John surgery. Yeah. <laughs> then again, in today's baseball, everyone has Tommy John surgery, and everyone comes back from Tommy John surgery. Corey it's, Seager. It's a little bit like having your appendix removed, or something to that effect. Yes. So, okay, does wins in the upper 90s, does that win them the division or not? Yeah, okay. it's a lock. Yeah. Okay, whereas I've already determined that the Yankees are going to win 105 games this season and win the AL East. On the other hand, I think probably the Red Sox will win a comparable number of of games, and uh, not to the Yankees, but to your prediction on the Dodgers, rather. And that'll be enough to get in the wild card. But I watched a little bit of the Yankees this morning, and they're actually terrifying. I, I think that is the best team in baseball, probably by a lot. They're stacked. And I don't like saying that. Whereas the team I'm rooting for doesn't have a closer in its opening day. And Sorry about taking Joe Kelly, dude. The most Red Sox fans don't particularly care about Joe Kelly. He's good in a fight, and that's uh, nice to have. And honestly, you know, you can never have too much middle relief. But he was not going to be the solution at the end of the bullpen. But I'm, but Red Sox fans are both generally jackasses, speaking as one, as most Boston fans are in general, but also are very insecure, especially for uh, fans of a team that have won four World Series in the past 15 years. And I'm very curious as Do to you what... you have to rub that in, Apologies. Dan. I'm very curious what will happen when Matt Barnes and Ryan Brazier blow their first saves and how quickly people in Boston begin to panic. Fortunately, Craig Kimbrell is still unemployed, so... Uh, That's astounding. Well, I, I mean, it's sort of, we could tie this into TV by talking about sort of union strife and developing union strife and collusion and, and tie this into the agent's writer's negotiation because packaging is sort of collusion in its own way. And do you feel like there is collusion in baseball or did the contract signed by Bryce Harper and Patrick Corbin and Manny Machado prove that there is no collusion? No, I, no I, collusion. I don't think there's any collusion here, but... <laughs> I think those contracts are the equivalent of what's happening in the overall deal space in television. And we can talk about that maybe next week. But, you know, Dan, your big Red Sox. Look, Fangraphs is predicting that the Red Sox is going to win 94 games, make the playoffs as a wild card, as you said, after finishing three games back of the Yankees. Meanwhile, Fangraphs is predicting the Dodgers will win the West again and finish with 93 wins. I think we need a bet here. I don't know that the bet that you proposed in our notes here. Would you like to tell the kids what your bet in the notes is? I'm saying if if the Red Sox win more games in the regular season than the Dodgers do, I will wear a Red Sox jersey and you can take a photo and put it on social media, have a field day. And if the Dodgers win with more regular season wins than the Red Sox, you have to do the same in the Do in Dodgers. But the problem is that I like the Dodgers. And I'm perfectly happy to well, do that. Well, then I don't know what the bet is also, here, Dan, But all I know is that I think the Dodgers are going to have more wins than the Red Sox. Also, if you're going to wear a uh, a Red Sox shirt, there's at least a reasonable chance I might go to the back of my closet and pull out my Kurt Schilling Red Sox jersey oh and make you wear God, that. God, that would make my skin crawl. <laughs> I would I would feel uncomfortable with it as well. Ugh. So, so don't, How, Why do you still own that, Dan? Because I don't burn things. I'm not one of those people who does that. Real, it's called Goodwill. Realistically, for purposes of that, I have a Ted Williams Red Sox shirt that you would not that in would any wear. way feel ashamed wearing okay but what who's the winner here is it regular season wins is regular it... season best of 162 hmm. okay well sure we're you, you can't see us but we're shaking on it there it is that's a bet well that's a good reason to move on dan as always we wrap things up with our critics corner segment number five this week santa clarita diet and on my block return to netflix amazon reboots hannah HBO kicks off the final season of Veep and the sophomore run of Barry. 
CBS All Access debuts the first few episodes of its Twilight Zone Redux, and The Last OG and Brockmire return to TBS and IFC, respectively. Dan, what's worth watching this week? And you didn't even mention the CW show about the blind nymphomaniac detective uh, who solves crimes with her dog. Called In the Dark. Yeah, it's not a real show. That's why I didn't mention it. Excellent. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of good stuff. You will discover, listeners, as we head into April, that as we get closer to the end of the Emmy eligibility window, more and more good stuff is coming back. And there's some great stuff this week. I have not watched any of the new episodes of Brock Meyer, but the first two seasons were among my favorite on all of TV. It is a a brilliant, hilarious show that ties wonderfully in with our baseball conversation just now. If you are a baseball fan and if you are a fan of raunchy, lewd, ridiculous comedy, it is fantastic. And it is obscene that uh, Hank Azaria has not been nominated for an Emmy for it. It is it is just such a good performance. And you can, anytime you want, ask me who I want to kick out of the top six nominees to put Hank Azaria in, because I can do that easy every time. He should be nominated for Emmys constantly. Speaking of shows that are already nominated for Emmys and win Emmys, you've got Barry coming back. And as my review, which should be up on THR as of now, or will be up any minute, depending on the time, it's a drama this season. It was it was a dramedy last season, but it got darker and darker as it went along. And it's basically a drama with a couple laughs this season. And I kind of applaud the audacity of it, of being willing to say, OK, the, the show led us in a dramatic direction. That's where we are. Fortunately, Veep is still Veep and is still hilarious. There's a lot of good stuff this week. So, you know, Hannah is not nearly as good as the movie, but it's somewhat exciting. Santa Clarita Diet, a lot of people checked out on it really early. It's a loopy, fun show. And, you know, everyone's talking about Jordan Peele constantly now, thanks to us. Twilight Zone is coming back. The first two episodes back, which are premiering together on April 1st, are a mixed bag, but... They're interesting. They've got some things to say. I would not give them an enthusiastic recommendation, but interesting. They, they most definitely didn't need to be as long as they are, the episodes. Come on, guys. Don't, don't give in to streaming bloat. Tighten stuff up. And yeah, that's what to watch this week. The stuff you liked already. Well, Dan, that's a good point to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And if you like this podcast, check out Scott Feinberg's Awards Chatter, which on Monday features an extensive interview with the Masked Singer's Ken Jeong about his career and his upcoming Netflix comedy special. God, I hope he gets all the Dr. Ken gossip. Dan and I will be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms and email us your TV questions at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5 at THR.com for your questions, comments, and concerns. If you like us, go to your friendly podcasting platform and rate us. If you really like us, give us a little review there. It, it probably helps. Until next week, Dan. Until next week, Leslie.